Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to the Floater Founder Podcast. This is a Toronto-based podcast featuring local founders across all markets. We are your hosts, Samantha Lloyd and Lyson Casey. We are going to be bringing you interviews with exciting and hardworking founders. They will be sharing their experience creating and leading a company. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, you're here with Floater Founder. I'm your host, Samantha Lloyd, here with my co-hosts, Lies and Casey. Hello everyone. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing Aaron Burry and Kevin Olds, the co-founders of Willful. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So uh, let's give a bit of background to our audience. What is Willful? So Willful is an online estate planning platform that helps Canadians create a will and power of attorney documents online for way less money, hassle, and time than it would traditionally take to visit a lawyer or get it done in the old-fashioned way. And what inspired the two of you to start this company? I experienced firsthand the death of a family member and saw how difficult it was to navigate this space of closing up someone's life and planning a funeral. And that's what got me into this uh, initially, because I saw how difficult it was to have conversations and that people were not able to have conversations. And after that, I had two personal run-ins myself and potentially put my family through the exact same thing because I wasn't prepared. And that's what put me on this trajectory down this path to uh, figure out a plan and, and, and decide or help decide what uh, a better way to do this would be and after research and talking with Aaron uh, and doing a lot of research uh, we were able to launch this uh, company but it didn't start as willful it started as something different and then we bit we did a bit of a pivot um, but uh, that is it's a personal story and experience that uh, put me down this path. Do you have the percent of how many people don't have a will? I mean, there's at least 50% of people at this table who do not. (laughs) Well, we were definitely those people as well. So it would have been 100% if you had asked us a few years ago. But yes, we actually did commission some research through Angus Reid and found that 57% of Canadian adults don't have a will. Uh, That number is a lot higher, 89% amongst millennials, because obviously we all think YOLO and that we're going to live forever. Um, And we found that 10% of people who do have wills, those wills are out of date because they've gone through something like a marriage or a divorce or a birth of a child. So um, our estimate is that there's about 16 million Canadian adults who don't have a plan in place or have an out-of-date plan. That is significant. What you're doing at Willful is really disruptive. Did you find any resistance in the industry or how is, how is that working with the established way of doing things? So resistance for sure. Earlier on, I was trying to speak with a lot of lawyers to try to give them the breakdown of what we're doing. They essentially were not very open to speak with me. Some would. Some basically told me to get the hell out of here. Uh, They were worried that we would potentially take clients and and revenue from them. But um, after a while, explaining to a lot of the lawyers that our customers were never going to be their customers just because of the price point. A lot of them are priced out of the market. Um, and showing them that we are able to work with them to bring them other revenue opportunities was something that uh, the lawyers that we're currently working with all saw and uh, realized the value of working with us in in, in hopes of making the overall goal of more Canadians having a plan in place. Uh, That's what they were on board with me um, to, to help build that out. Yeah, and I think a lot of them, a lot of the partners that we have tend to be 
you know, it sounds cliche, but they are a little bit younger. They use technology in their own personal lives and they understand that while this might not be the way the industry is today, it's the way the industry is going and they really want to have a forward thinking business and a forward thinking practice. So to Kev's point, I think there were a lot of people in the early days who saw us as competition and now more and more people are understanding that, you know, they might not be able to capture a client for a will because you might walk in the door, find out it's a thousand dollars to create a simple will and you might come and use Willful. But if they gave you a free will through Willful or even a promo code, maybe you'd be more inclined to go back to them for a real estate transaction or any other of the legal needs that you'll need at some point in your life. So, um, that's really how we've been selling it is this is the way the industry is moving and there could be a value add to your practice if you actually do promote us to your your clients and and to add to that we never look to come into this and 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 get rid of lawyers we feel that there's always going to be a need for lawyers uh, especially the ones that we're working with to be our legal advisors to create our legal content and make sure everything's up to date Uh, so it was never our intention to try to get rid of lawyers, just work with them. And, and uh, eventually we want to have partnerships and, and hope that uh, if our customers do get more complex estates as they grow, we want to be able to put them in touch with lawyers that we're working with and uh, hope that uh, they continue on with us with some sort of relationship. Cool. And uh, and yeah, kind of in like the five year plan and the 10 year plan, uh, where do you see Willful going and how important is uh, actual automation to that um, so you say you want to continue to work with lawyers, but there are other kind of like uh, avenues to explore, like having machine learning models to prepare the actual more tedious tasks. Yeah, I think the way that we think about Willful's evolution is to build out more tools for the people preparing for and dealing with death. So, you know, not necessarily just having an online will company, but really creating the world's first consumer brand that makes death a bit more friendly and that makes it easier for people to think about, prepare for, and then on the flip side, makes it a hell of a lot easier for the people who are actually dealing with someone's passing. Um, Right now, if you think about you know, what's the first brand that pops into your head when I say death or executors or wills, there's not really like a wealth simple for uh, estate planning and for tools for executors. So that's really our goal long-term is to just have the will be the point of entry. Because once you've created your will, it really is the tip of the iceberg. So in your will, you've said who you want to leave your money to, who you want to take care of your dog or your children, uh, and who you want to actually be your executor to, to put that plan into place. But you haven't told them, you know, where all of your passwords are stored or what you want done with your Twitter account or who you have life insurance with or even if you do have life insurance. So there's all of these other components to actually closing up someone's life that we often forget. We think we're done once we check off the will, but I actually have, it's a folder called When I Die and it's a Google Drive folder that has a bunch of different subfolders around things like the last posts I want on my social media accounts, all of our um, accounts that we have, all the details of our properties and our businesses and what I would want done with my business. And uh, I shared that with Kev and he's my executor. I shared it with my backup executor because there's so much other stuff that goes into it. So that's really the long-term vision for Willful is help people prepare a really comprehensive plan for when they pass away that includes things that are really important in 2019, like digital footprint and digital legacy, and also build out what we think is one of the first tools that helps the executors putting those plans into action to make it a lot easier. Because right now, if you're an executor, you're sitting on hold with Rogers and every single bank for hours. And to your point about automation, what if we could have a system where you uploaded a death certificate and all of a sudden it 
crawls their credit card statement and shuts down all of their accounts automatically. That would be, that's the dream, but uh, I'm not the tech person on the team. So I don't know if that's actually feasible, but we'll see. Having, yeah, having your life integrated into one spot where you can add to and edit. But when that comes to an end, like Aaron said, easily just flipping a switch and having someone just automatically take care of everything. But the other thing that we want to look into is allowing people to really customize their funeral plans, which seems a bit morbid. But uh, again, with my experience from my family, if there was a plan that we could have followed, it would have been a lot easier to get through things because depending on how a death happens, uh, most of the time it's usually very sudden. And uh, when your family's trying to figure out what you would have wanted, it's it's not a fun experience. So having things planned out and, and, and the sky's the limit uh, when it comes to this. So that's what I'm kind of excited about. So people can put together a pretty, uh, pretty crazy plan to pass on to their friends and family, maybe throw in some humor to, uh, to help the situation a little bit. Yeah, I, I met a guy recently who put into his will that he wanted uh, X person to take care of his pet and he was leaving this amount of money and that if the, if the standard of care that he had described to them wasn't met, his ghost would haunt them forever. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if that's legally binding, but I like the humor that they put into their will. Yeah, I'd want people to have fun too. So having a company surrounding death is probably a difficult topic to talk about. How has it been leading a company that is all about um, people's deaths? I think when Kev came to me with the idea, I said, could you not have picked something sexier, anything sexier, <laughs> pretty much anything would be sexier than, than wills and estate planning. But, you know, it actually turns out that it's such an interesting problem and it's such a widespread issue that so many people, millions of people haven't put a plan in place. And I think we're at an interesting point in history where we're about to see the baby boomers, you know, go through retirement and this huge um, wealth transfer is going to happen between the boomers and the next generations. Uh, we're also seeing for the first time the impact of having a digital footprint and seeing people pass away and dealing with that. So uh, it actually has become more of a sexy space in my mind. But the biggest challenge that we have is getting people to think about something they actively try not to think about all day. I mean, try to think about any other business you're running, whether it's an e-commerce store um, or even car insurance. I mean, a lot of people don't like to think about car insurance, but they get it because they know they need it. Whereas I think with estate planning, there's a whole other side of it, which is that people feel if you think about death, you'll somehow invite it into your life. And there's also this sense of no urgency. I mean, if you're 30 years old and you just bought a house or got married, why create a will today when you feel like you're going to live until age 90? And so it's about how do you actually position estate planning as something that's really important, but that's also approachable and something that has a sense of urgency without using fear. Because we can't just go out to people and say, you know, you could die tomorrow. <laughs> because then it becomes really uncomfortable. So that's the challenge for us is creating a sense of urgency and making it approachable and actually getting people to care about it. And that confluence of things is very difficult to achieve. Yeah, we're, we're trying to empower people. We're not trying to scare people, as Aaron mentioned. But if you look at Life insurance. Life insurance is death insurance. If you look at it, right, it's just it's, has better branding. <clears throat> exactly, and uh, it, it is a, a, a big challenge, but it's an exciting challenge to, again, just show the importance of this without using fear tactics. And and it is something that uh, everyone's going to go through. No one's getting out of this alive, and and we're just trying well, to. That should be our new tagline. <laughs> <laughs> but trying to put a positive spin on this to 
make a plan for your life and then get on with your life and live it to, to the fullest. And so to switch gears a bit, I want to talk to you guys about being a husband and wife duo because we're super biased to being a husband and wife duo. Um, it obviously has a lot of benefits. I mean, when you live together, even though it means like work may become 24 seven, it's so easy to bounce ideas off each other all the time. Um, so do you want to talk about how that's been running a company together? And even in the investor scene, how do they, um, how do they like receive you guys as a husband and wife team and things like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we certainly didn't start off as a husband and wife team. Kev started the business in late 2017, and I was always involved as an advisor and a friends and family investor, um, but I didn't have an intention to join the company full time. I was running a creative agency at the time, which I really, really loved. And then earlier this year, when I was thinking about moving on to the next challenge, it just kind of came up as the best option because I slowly broke her down yes he's, he, he likes to say he slowly broke me down but but I was I was looking for a role where I'd be challenged every day where I was passionate about the mission behind it and where it was a small team and to be honest if I had taken a job that fit all those criteria at someone else's startup I think we probably would have gotten divorced so it's a good it's a good thing I took this opportunity but it has been interesting I mean right after we I joined the team full-time earlier this year. We participated in the Founder Fuel Startup Accelerator, and part of that program was uh, what they call Mentor Days, which is sitting with 200 entrepreneurs and investors and talking to them about your business and getting advice, like speed dating. And It's the, exhausting. It's very exhausting, but the commentary on us being a husband and wife team was very split. There were some investors who said, oh, like don't mention that. Investors actively try not to invest in husband and wife teams, all the way to the complete flip side was, which was we love husband and wife teams because we know that they're never going to have someone breathing down their neck that's telling them to work less. Um, so we found it, we find it very polarizing and I'm not sure if you find it the same when it comes to launching a, pro a project with your spouse. But um, I think for us personally, it has been, it's definitely had its ups and downs just like running a company. We're in our first year of marriage. I think you guys just got married yes, too. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, so, so yeah, to go from getting married to being full-time co-workers and co-founders in your first year of marriage is a lot. And we also moved to Montreal for four months. So that was fast. Yeah. So I think it's, um, you know, we've been together for almost 12 years. So I think having a solid foundation for our relationship was helpful. And I think the most helpful thing is really understanding each of our working styles. I'm very type A efficient, um, organized and Kev is very different. He's very creative. He's, you know, amazing face to face. And so I think it's just been learning to respect and work with each other's working styles because I don't want him to change because I need the things that he does really well. And I don't want another me and vice versa. So it's, it's really just been me trying to rewire my way of working with him because he's not necessarily someone that has sat at a desk his entire life. Um, and that's a great thing because I think it makes him super relatable and a great relationship builder. But um, there's definitely yeah. no there's no set formula, I think, for anybody. Uh, there, no one can say if you do this, this and this, you guys are going to be successful and work together amazingly. Uh, for us, I think it's going to be and for anybody, it's going to be a con consistent work in progress where you're testing things and figuring out uh, when and what boundaries to put in when it comes to, all right, we, we've worked too long. Let's take a break and watch a Netflix show. Which is too dangerous to do very often. <laughs> <laughs> We're counting down the minutes until we can watch billions again. Yeah. Um, but as Aaron mentioned, some of these other investors say they love that, uh, when they invest in husband and wife teams, they are right where we can work on this 24 hours if you wanted to. 
and there's nothing in getting in the way other than sleep and, and eating food sometimes. But uh, for us, it's going to be uh, a constant uh, trial and error until we figure out the best formula for us. And then we'll probably do that for a while and then we'll need to recalibrate at some point. But it's been mostly amazing. And obviously anything new, there's going to be some setbacks or arguments that come up and we're just yeah, we're, ro- we're rolling along nicely, so it's it's been exciting. Hopefully you guys are too. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've never had to face investors, so I was really curious. It's interesting to hear that some really love it and some are so against it. I think a lot of the reason that some investors are wary of it is it's not that they don't like husband and wife co-founders when things are going well and they're still husband and wife. It's that there's a lot more potential for conflict. Or some and, have seen it firsthand. Yeah, and a lot of them have been through scenarios where there's husband and wife co-founders and then the husband and wife's split up and any co-founder split up can be really stressful on the business. And I've seen that happen before as well. But a lot of people don't actually take the time to write in the what if scenarios or the shotgun clauses around what happens if I up and leave and what happens with my equity and are we actually going to be able to work together as co-founders if we're not together as husband and wife. So I think they're pretty nervous about the the what if scenarios. And I can't say I blame them, but I think that's a risk with any co-founder duo. And it's interesting. They seem to have something to say about every pairing. If you're a solo founder, they say, well, you don't have enough co-founders. How are you going to shoulder the burden of this? If you're co-founders with someone, well, how did you meet them? How do we know that you guys are going to work well together? And if you're husband and wife, how do we know that you're not going to split up and want to kill each other? So I think you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And a lot of the feedback you get in a room with investors tends to be just a projection of the experiences that they've had with other founders. And yeah, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't take it uh, personally if someone said, oh, you're a husband, wife, co-founder. I don't want to talk to you there. That's their initial view on you. And I think that if you talk to them, like for us, we would just say, we've been together for 12 years. Let's sit down and have a talk. Like this isn't, we got married a year ago and met two years ago or something like that. We've been together for a very long time. And I think they'll take it by case by case basis and, and make a decision. But if they don't, every investor has a checklist of what they're looking for and what they're not looking for. And if you are unfortunately in that one box, it's not, it's nothing personal. It's just, it doesn't fit into their thesis and uh, don't waste too much time trying to, you know, put a, a square peg into a, a round, a round hole. But uh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's always an investor that fits exactly like who you are and what you're building. So it's better to put in the work for that. Yeah. We found too, uh, not to talk too much about investors, but it's interesting. I think you, uh, you hear a lot of feedback from investors that makes you question whether you're the right fit for their for any of their theses. Because, for example, we're a B2C company, which a lot of investors don't like. We're Canada only right now, which a lot of investors don't like. We're a husband and wife team. We, you know, we don't have a crazy competitive moat like AI. Like realistically, our brand is our biggest competitive moat right now. So there are a lot of boxes that we don't check for investors. And it's made us sit down and say, are we going to go out and bust our butts pitching 150 investors to find that one person? Or are we going to recognize that the structure of our company right now isn't conducive to a seed stage or VC investor, and we're going to get money other ways. And that's what we focused on. We have funding from ClearBank, um, which funds our marketing capital. We've gotten money from individual angel investors who really believe in the mission and what we're doing. Um, and we've gotten, you know, we've made money through revenue, which is actually the best way to fund your company. Yeah. So it is interesting, though, because a lot of the feedback that we've received about us being husband and wife, but also just about the other concerns that investors have, have really made us sit down and question whether we want to conform to what an investor is looking for on their checklist or whether we want to be who we want to be and understand that that might, you know, exclude us from getting money from certain people. 
That's awesome. And congrats on the revenue so early in the company too, that I think speaks volumes. I was very excited when we first launched that uh, we we were getting revenue from day one. Uh, it was nowhere near what it is now, but uh, it was exciting to have a product, launch it, and then immediately see people being able to use a product and, and purchase a product. So that was very exciting. Uh, and then it was looking at which levers to press and, and change and test. And when you don't have experience in that uh, area and you and you and your only developer are trying to wear every single hat and realize that we're not doing certain things right, but it was a lot of trial and error and, and then eventually bringing in the right people. But it was, it was something that we were not sure. We were really worried that once we switched the, the on switch, what was going to happen and fortunate we were, well, I assumed that something would happen and people would buy, but uh, you really don't know until things go live and you start telling people and, and uh, it was very exciting. But uh, this year compared to last year, things are so much more exciting, uh, to be honest with you, in terms of revenue and, and the amount of coverage and, and brand awareness that we have. It's it's uh, it's amazed me, actually, how uh, how well things have been going. That's great. And do you want to talk a bit about the process of uh, getting that brand recognition and uh, getting in publications and things like that? Sure, yeah. I think um, it's no secret that my strength lies in kind of brand building. I'm not a data-driven marketer that stares at spreadsheets all day. I've always spent my career growing brands through PR and events and word of mouth. And I think we're lucky that Willful does have a brand that you can insert into a lot of conversations. Um you know, we focused a lot on partnerships. So while we are a B2C company, we focus on partnering with, you know, other fintechs like Coho or Wealthsimple. With larger companies, we're working on partnerships with some of the banks and life insurance companies uh, to really have them act as distribution methods for us. And um, that's been working really, really well. On the PR side of it, uh, unfortunately, the only time that estates and wills are in the news is when someone dies without a will. So like Aretha Franklin or Prince passed away without a will. Actually, Luke Perry was in, in the Luke news Perry for having a, a will. Yes, he was very responsible. Good job, Luke Perry. Uh, but we, we do try to build it into a larger trend story about legal technology and how technology is changing traditional industries. So we've been fortunate to get coverage in tech publications, but also in the more lifestyle parenting publications, which are the ones that our potential customers read. Uh, and we've had a lot of traction just from the story of, of Kevin's experience. I think everyone loves to hear an entrepreneur who has that aha moment and who takes that and builds it into something. And the fact that Kevin went through the death of a loved one and, you know, had all of those questions himself is, is really relatable. And so we do a lot of lunch and learns for companies where Kev talks about the story. Uh, we do a lot of speaking engagements and uh, things like that. So I think as an entrepreneur, your story is always your biggest asset because you do have every entrepreneur has that that moment where they experienced a problem and thought that they could solve it better with their product or service. And so to me, building a brand is always around telling that story and just finding a way to make people care about it. Because that's the hardest part when you're a small company is how do you actually get people to pay attention? Not just partners, but journalists, investors, employees. And so it is about crafting that, that, that why. Why are you doing this? Why is this a problem? Why should everyone else care? And um, PR specifically, I think, is something that a lot of startups have a challenge with. It's, you know, they feel like they're sending a pitch out into the ether and they never actually hear back from a journalist. And 
my best advice is always to make it some, you know, to remember that you existing is not news, unfortunately, and to frame it around something that's timely. So for example, uh, sending a pitch to a CTV news journalist and saying, hey, we're willful, you should write about us, versus saying, hey, Aretha Franklin passed away last week without a will, leaving her family in the lurch. Why did she do that? Here are some takeaways from a Canadian estate planning company. And it becomes much more relevant that way. So that's kind of my, my top brand building tip for founders. Can you talk a little more about how you were feeling when you first launched the company and how has the product changed until then, since then? And how did you go about making those decisions? Like, how did you know a certain change or feature was the right way to go? <laughs> Great question. Uh, so <clears throat> the, the, first comp- the first product that I launched was called Final Blueprint, and there was nothing legally binding about it. That was primarily the... Uh, funeral plans on steroids and, and, and a blueprint of your life that would get passed on to certain family members and friends. And that was, again, to Aaron's point of mentioning the uh, where to find your your life insurance, your, your home insurance, and things like that, things that your family needs to close down. So we built that, or I, I first built that on a Wix site myself, actually. So I was able to do a small demo for somebody because I couldn't explain it properly. But uh, after they saw my little Wix demo, they said, okay, I see what you're doing. I understand now I will, I will build you an MVP. So essentially, uh, took about a year to build this MVP. Everything always takes twice as long and twice as much more money. Um, but when we did get ready to launch, I, I thought, uh, this was a very different thought than, than Willful's launch, but I thought this was, I was the smartest guy in the world and everybody was going to buy this. Uh, I was, I was certain of it. And, uh, essentially we had crickets, I think. Aaron and my mom and, and a few a few family members were the one who bought it out of you know I think they felt guilty for for, for if they didn't see their name uh, show up on our on our Stripe uh, payments page but uh, after seeing nothing happen really uh, it was okay well why is this happening why is no one buying it and what we discovered uh, again Aaron helped me pinpoint this essentially and I did my own research but what we built was a nice to have. It was, it was a vitamin and it wasn't a painkiller. It wasn't something that you need to have. And I think that was a huge, uh, diff- or th- that was a huge, uh, focus that we saw was if someone doesn't really need something, they're not going to buy it. And, uh, once we decided that wills are the, the most important aspect of estate planning. Um, then I went to work, started trying to talk to lawyers and, and went down that path of getting a lot of uh, rejection and, and whatnot. But after, um, finally figuring out or, uh, finding certain lawyers that would work with us, then it was, I went to my advisory group from the original, from the original idea and said, okay, this is what I'm thinking about. And, what's your thoughts? And they all said, okay, they all basically agreed that this is a much better idea. And they, my original advisor said, we'll, we'll put in money to this. And that was essentially how things got started was the original advisory board said, they'll put money in. Uh, I brought in a, a developer who was, um, much more available and, and, uh, able to give me a lot more time to this, to work on it one-on-one with me. And, uh, we, we put, we'll put uh, a few lawyers together and, and launch in Ontario and having a much better name and branding was another huge difference. A lot of people said your name was scary and, and I thought you were a construction company and things. So <laughs> aligning, uh, aligning a positive uh, brand and name was something that 
I feel made a huge difference. Um, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't work like that for everybody. Sometimes a name doesn't matter. You see very successful companies with less than favorable names, but, uh, it was just a combination of the uh, pivoting to the, the, the really important aspect of the estate side, estate planning side and aligning with a nice approachable brand that kind of made, made the difference in my mind. Yeah, and I think to your point about or to your question about how to evaluate and implement product expansion or product features, I think in the early days, the idea was to create a will that would satisfy a large percentage of people who were creating their first will. So there are tons of complexities to estate planning. If you have a business, there, there are you know dual wills that you can create. There are all sorts of if, if this, then that scenarios that you can put into your will. And we really just said, what's the, the most basic will that we can create that covers off the majority of what people in their 20s and 30s would need and beyond in some cases. So, you know, we really cater to people who don't have those complexities and anyone who does, we send them off to a lawyer. And when we know that we're getting a huge volume of live chats or phone calls or emails about a certain feature request, that's when we really start evaluating it and putting it on our product roadmap and trying to validate that it's something that needs to be there and that we shouldn't just leave it out. So a good example of that is a contingent beneficiary feature that we're launching where um, it basically allows you to stipulate if you and your family were all in an accident together, let's say you were on a plane or something, um, you could appoint someone as a backup that would take care of everything and that all the money would go to. And so that was a request that we just saw repeatedly coming in. And it was really something that was intended to be there from the start. You just have to cut things from your product roadmap when you're trying to get to launch. And so it was really easy for us to validate that. Whereas there are other requests that people have where we just say to ourselves, does this help? Does this align with our mission of getting as many Canadians as possible their first will or that first simple will? And a lot of the times it's, a, it's no. That's for a really complex case where they should be going to a lawyer and we can't just build something that one person wants because your biggest challenge as an entrepreneur is focus. There's a million things we could add to our will. There's a million ways we could change our platform every day, but we have one full-time engineer one part-time developer and that's it. So we have to really make the most of their time. And as of now, they're tapped out well beyond what they should be just with the, the basics. So I think that's how we'd like to think about evaluating it, but. Cool, yeah, so uh, for a direct-to-consumer company, having revenue right off the bat is really, really impressive. Um, kind of, you, you talked a little bit earlier about how changing the name and the marketing directive to make it something that you need was really important. Can you talk a little bit more about some other marketing uh, tactics that you used? Um, is, it, is it more traditional uh, advertising or what are you doing to, in, order to, in order to be uh, profitable? Yeah, so I think whenever I was working with companies at my previous agency or whenever I'm thinking about how to build a brand, I always start with two things. Who is my customer? Not, and it can't be broad. It can't be 16 million Canadians don't have a will. No, who amongst those people are the most likely to actually take the steps to get a will? And then where do those people already spend time online and off that we can integrate into instead of having to draw their attention away? So in our case, it's definitely new parents. Uh, they're the most likely to actually take that step because it's not about them anymore. It's about protecting their child. Uh, you know, there are definitely secondary uh, groups like people who are getting married, buying their home, getting divorced. That's our best performing Facebook group because when you get a divorce, you're like, I don't want that guy to get any of my money. I'm updating that will tomorrow. Um, so when we actually looked at where those people spend time and, and how to actually reach them, 
we focused a lot on content and education. So that's both content on our own site to educate new parents and other key groups, but also content on third-party sites. And that's really helped us with our SEO and driving organic search. Because really when you're looking for a will, you're probably starting your search on Google or you're maybe going on social or asking a friend or family member. So for us, organic search has always been our number one, maybe not day one, but of late, it's our number one uh, source of traffic. And we spend a lot of time on things like content swaps with partners and media coverage because that helps us build our SEO and building content on our own site. Uh, partnerships have been really key for us, both partnerships with people like Wellsimple and Coho, which are more structured as affiliate partnerships, but also partnerships with face-to-face advisors, financial planners who are telling their clients directly uh, to go check out Willful, which is probably why direct traffic is our number two source of traffic. Uh, And on the paid side, we do pretty much just Google AdWords right now. Again, I'm not a data-driven performance marketer, so we're in the process of hiring a growth marketer, and we're going to be doing more of the traditional Facebook, Instagram, podcast ads, testing out a lot of those things. But to date, I was actually pulling these numbers today for an investor update, and 76% of our traffic comes to us from unpaid sources, and 74% of our purchases are from unpaid traffic sources. So it really goes to show you that a lot of people are finding us through word of mouth, through our press coverage, through uh, partnerships, and our our biggest paid sources right now are AdWords and affiliate partnerships. So I have a lot of confidence in the growth of the company, knowing that enough people are coming to us right now that where we're only spending, I think, about two thousand dollars a month on marketing right now uh, that we have a lot of room for for growth there and we did we did do some testing with getting some creative built and hiring uh, hiring agencies and, and trying it ourselves as well and we just I mean we didn't have the budget to be a number one client for an agency and then trying ourselves was something that is you need an expert and we're looking to do that in-house now and bring someone in because you could spend or waste thousands and thousands of dollars if you're not tracking or doing the right things and and that's something that we attempted at first and realized let's let's put things on hold for a bit and and come back to this because we do feel that we can really make a difference but uh if you don't have the right people in place you're just going to waste lots of money Um, So you talk about adding people to your team. How has it been hiring people, um, the process of hiring, and uh, how is it maintaining kind of a company, or I guess even discovering what your company culture is as this happens? Yeah, it's a it's a great question and something I'm very passionate about. At my previous agency, you know, I think we built such an incredible culture, um, and it's something that's really important to me, especially now that we're a tech business. You know, being a marketing agency is very different from being a tech company, and right now there's a, a big microscope on tech companies when it comes to things like inclusive cultures and diversity practices. And you know, I think that we already have a leg up in that we have me, a female CEO, uh, and half of our team is women, but that's just part of the equation. So I think we're starting to put a lot of thought into how to build a thoughtful culture because uh, I think there's a tendency when you're growing a startup to just let that develop over time and you let your bad habits develop with that. So for example, I met a founder uh, 
whose company was about 120 people. And he said in the early stages, him and his co-founders used to go to the gym every day at lunch. And so as they expanded, you know, if you were a gym rat, then you would get to go and spend time with the founders every day. But if you weren't and you preferred to stay at the office or do something else, you kind of missed out on that little club. And it's those kind of early practices that I think become less inclusive over time. Um, As we've hired people, we've definitely you know, thought about the types of culture that we want to build and hired for that. And we've also been pretty intentional about sharing that within the office, but we're also only as good as the people we share office space with. So we're lucky to share office space with Lupio, which is, I think has one of the best company cultures in Toronto. They're an amazing team. So I think just being around their culture and seeing it rub off on us and the stuff that they do uh, is great because they're about a hundred people. So you know, we see where we might be in a few years and the types of practices that they've put in place. Uh, and that has been really helpful for us as well. So um, I guess we should go into some rapid fire questions then. Um, what is your favorite spot in Toronto? Jacob's Steakhouse. To clarify, though, he goes once a year, um, just in case any of our investors are listening yeah. and thinking that we're going out for fancy steaks. It's my special, special place once a year for my birthday, <laughs> but that is my easy, fast, quick answer. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say a couple. So my favorite restaurant to have a meal at is probably Biblos. It has the most amazing food. It has Negronis on tap and it is always the best meal that I have. Uh, my favorite workout spot is Barry's Boot Camp, which I'm obsessed with and which Kev refuses to do with me after having one disastrous class where he had to leave halfway through. I'm building up. Okay. <laughs> uh, and my favorite lunch spot is Le Grimond, which is a coffee shop at Richmond and Spadina that makes the best chocolate chip cookie yes. in the world, but that also has amazing lunch and good coffee. So. Our office was around the corner from there, is still around the corner from there, and I've always lived around that area, so the number of Logermann chocolate chip cookies I've eaten in my life is probably like in the hundreds, and the Toronto Star has this column called The Dish where they analyze the calorie count of dishes. Don't look at it. And they, years and years and years into my cookie habit, they published an article, and it basically showed that the cookies at Logermann have like a full day's worth of calories, and I would eat two sometimes. So anyways, now my cookie habit has been curbed a bit, so thanks a lot, Toronto star (laughs) and um what is the best place you've ever traveled to well we're very avid travelers so this sounds like we're millionaires when i say this i swear they were all for good reasons but this year um, and mostly through work and we just tacked on a couple extra days so this year we've been to fiji australia new zealand on our honeymoon Honeymoon. singapore for work and scotland um, for fun after founder fuel ended so my answer for the best place we've ever traveled though uh, i would say india because i've always had a lifelong fascination with it rohinton mystery the canadian author is my favorite author and uh, going there was just kind of the fulfillment of a place that i'd always wanted to go and the culture was so different that i just absolutely loved it and can't wait to go back for me, Dubai was really cool. That was something, it's like a city of the future. It's really amazing. Super hot if you go in the summer, but uh, I thought Dubai was one of the coolest places we've ever been. But recently, the place I really want to go back to would be Scotland. It fell in love with the Scotland. The scotch has nothing to do with that <laughs> answer at all. And um, is there anywhere that uh, you would live outside of Toronto or run a business outside of Toronto? Interesting question. So Aaron has always wanted to live abroad somewhere and I've always been up for that idea depending on where we would be or how what if it would be willful. Um, I think being in the Founder Fuel program we were living not too far from home but uh, so far enough that uh, 
in Montreal that uh, we we had a completely. I mean, we were there for four months, so we we lived away for a while, and I think that kind of gave us a small insight. Uh, it was. I don't know if we would still feel the same if we would be up for moving somewhere and living abroad. I think it made us miss home. I think when you're, you know, Kev's 35, I'm 34, picking up and moving somewhere when you're 21 is very different than when you're in your mid-30s and you have your friends and you kind of have your routine. And I always like to think of myself as adventurous, which is why I'd always wanted to move somewhere else. But to Kev's point, I think being in Montreal made me realize how much my friends and my family are are part of why I love Toronto so much. So, uh, But if we had to run willful anywhere else, I would say it would be New York. Uh, because it's a center for finance and law and all of the industries that we would partner with. And I would have said San Francisco a decade ago, but the first time I went there, I realized it's cold and not like the rest of California. So it quickly dropped off my list. What is your go-to karaoke song? Mine is... Wait, can we say each other's? Yours is Mr. Brightside by The Killers. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. What's you mine? You have like 800. No, what's She's the She's a karaoke one? queen. I am a karaoke queen. Oh, man. Um, this is a test of how... This is like the newlywed game, exactly. You have so many. Um... I can't even think about it right now. Okay, it's well, like, it's You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette, and my husband doesn't even know me, so <laughs> that's what the listeners are going to say. I was going to say the away. Meatloaf song. Well, that's only if I have a partner, Paradise by the Dashboard's Lights, but it's also like nine minutes long, so it's pretty aggressive to bring out a karaoke. <laughs> but. Well, who has been your favorite teacher? I'll say the same answer that I always say. It was my grade eight teacher, uh, Kevin Hughes. He... Uh, he definitely helped me put me uh, on the right path, but uh, we've we've made, remained friends since uh, since grade eight, and uh, he's yeah he's someone that I can easily say had an amazing influence on me and and uh, was my my best teacher I've ever had. I'm gonna take a different route and say my mentor Sarah Prevet, who is the first person I worked for in the startup space. She's a serial entrepreneur, and she just taught me a lot about entrepreneurship and startups. I always say, I told her when I joined that my dream in life was to make six figures working for a big company. And she straight up laughed in my face and was like, you can dream so much bigger than that. And it was the first time someone had challenged my view of success, which had always been working for the man and, and, you know, taking home a tidy salary and maybe getting a bonus that year. And she really made me rethink what success was and, and showed me what flexibility and autonomy comes with being an entrepreneur. So I will be forever grateful to her for putting me on this path because now I can never turn back. Well, and if you go to mentor, then I would say Erin has been a mentor of mine watching her do her. You're just trying to make up for not knowing my karaoke song. (laughs) No, no, but I've looked and watched you from afar doing a lot of things throughout the tech uh, industry since 2008, 2009. And yeah, that's, I would say you were a huge, uh, huge help and inspiration getting my things in order and and getting to where I am today. Well, thank you.
Oh, and what was your very first job? My first job was a cashier at Loblaws. I made $7.10 an hour, which was over a minimum wage of $6.85. And I took pride in memorizing all of the produce codes, some of which I still remember 20 years later. My first job was a child model. And I made way I'm not more than... it's not true. I just forgot that that's a job. I made way more than $7.95 an hour. $7.10. Or $7.10. Um... That was, yeah, that was definitely my first job, and I really enjoyed it. That's cool. Any, anything we'd, like, recognize you from? Or, like, people would maybe recognize, well, they wouldn't recognize me, but I was in a commercial with Ron McClain for, uh, it was the CSA and the Hockey Hall of Fame. But Ron McClain was in that one, and I got to hang out with him. Uh, I play hockey with him as well as run around the Hockey Hall of Fame. So Ron McClain is probably one of the nicest coolest guys you'll ever meet and I think anybody would say the same about about that but I would be remiss to not mention he was in a byway ad campaign he was on the cover of a harlequin romance novel and he was in a fashion show on the Dini petty show so I mean if that's not a trifecta of success I don't know what is and listen his life could have taken a very different path because he interviewed to be one of the elves on the Santa Claus but unfortunately didn't get it I know. (laughs) (laughs) So who knows? He could be Tim Allen's sidekick today. We'll never know. That was awesome. Thank you guys so much. This was a ton of fun uh, interviewing both of you, and it was so great to get to talk to you both about uh, leading a company together. So thank you. We appreciate it a lot. Thanks for having us, and thanks thanks. for spending your free time building a podcast that helps entrepreneurs navigate their companies because it's a lot of work to do, and we don't have enough people telling entrepreneurs' stories. So thanks for putting a spotlight on people like us. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks again, and hopefully people can learn some things and. Yeah, it's awesome that you guys are doing this. So. And if not, yeah. we'll put the uh, link to Kevin's child modeling photos in yes. the show notes. We're finding them. <laughs> we wanted to thank you so much for coming in. We had such a great time interviewing you for Floater Founder. And thank you so much to our listeners. We are so excited to share more founder stories with you. Until, Until next time. time.